The relationships in your life can make you bitter or better. Up next, we'll be talking with a guest who wrote a book recently about how the relationships in our lives can be channels of grace and healing and how we can overcome the obstacles uh, that we find in our path and use them as rungs on the ladder of holiness. Stay tuned. everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of The Catholic Gentleman. We are grateful that you are here. We are your hosts, Sam Guzman and John Heinen. If this is your first time, please click subscribe. If you've been listening to us and you like listening to us, we're so grateful for your time. Head over to Apple um, Podcast or now Spotify, actually. You can write reviews, give us some four or five stars that helps expand the ministry, reach more men in need. And so, um, Sam and I are also working on a membership program for men that's going to be a lot of exclusive content, a lot of incredible things for men to help us regain our identity, to understand, you know, the ruptures at the fall of man and and how we need to work to heal those things to become authentic men for Christ and for our families, for church and for society. So if you're looking for a place to donate, head over to patreon.com slash Catholic gentlemen. We'd be grateful for any dollar that you could give us. So jumping in today, we are blessed to be joined by uh, Peter Herbeck. He is the Executive Director and Vice President of Missions at Renewal Ministries. For more than 30 years, he has been actively involved in evangelizing and Catholic renewal throughout U.S., Canada, Asia, Africa, Eastern Europe, the four corners of the world. He is spreading the gospel. Thanks be to God. Peter is the co-host of a weekly television show as well as a daily radio show. We're going to talk about that at the end of this um, episode. He is a frequent conference speaker. He's written a lot of books and written a bunch of booklets as well. And he's a frequent contributor to the Renewal Ministries popular YouTube channel, which we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Peter and his wife, Debbie, have four children and 10 grandchildren, and they reside in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Peter, how are you doing today? Doing wonderful. Thank you. Awesome. We're so grateful that you're here. I read in your book that you're from Minnesota, as am I, born and raised in uh, Minneapolis area, but you a little bit further south. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. New Ulm, big city. Uh, New Ulm. That's right. New Ulm. I've definitely yeah. driven past. Yeah, my uh, my dad grew up in Crookston, Minnesota, so I was way up in um, yeah, yeah the North, North Dakota. Yeah. yeah, exactly area. So uh, those were some of my old stomping grounds and summers in Duluth and Grand Marais and just all that beauty. But, um, but I kind of wanted to start there. I you, wanted you, to start. Yeah. Go for it, Sam. Yeah. I was just going to say, you must be tougher than we are because John and I both grew up from the North uh, and we migrated <laughs> South, <laughs> yeah. uh, but you stuck it out. You've, you've yeah. endured all these years. So yeah, yeah. Uh, that's impressive. Yeah. And Arbor is a little, it's uh, it's winters are a little more mild, but they're dark. Like it's, uh, yeah. it's a little bit like Mordor here from January <laughs> to uh, April 1st. There's a lot of dark days, you know, overcast skies. You don't get as much snow. And uh, one of the things I did love about Minnesota, my memory of the cold Minnesota winters where, you know, once I got my driver's license, people wear their sunglasses quite a bit in the wintertime because the bright sun, you know, is reflecting off the snow. I don't know if it's still the case up there because I haven't been up there for years. But uh, I mean, in the wintertime, I usually go in the summer when the weather's warm yeah, to visit my yeah. kids, you know. 
Yeah. yeah I, last time I was up there in the winter time and I'm obviously living in Texas here. And so cool. when I was up there in the winter time, like five or six years ago, and I remember stepping outside, it was negative seven and I breathed in and you know, your snot crystallizes. And I was like, Oh, I don't, <laughs> I don't get this in Texas. <laughs> so yeah, but yeah. you stayed with it. So, well, good. Well, we're talking about fatherhood. We're talking about the importance of fatherhood and why it's so necessary and why we are the living image of God, the father to our families here on earth. And I wanted to start because you did such an incredible job um speaking about this and writing about this that uh, you have a father wound yourself and i feel like there's so uh, so many of the the root problems in our lives today are because of our father wounds right of our earthly father wounds that is because if we don't get that right um you know and and god is as uh, a father we we start uh, associating all of these pains and hurts you know with a, a condescending a demeaning and exacting a you know god in heaven and we, we get that wrong and we, we're not embracing our identity. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your, your father wound and, and God's grace that uh, brought you to healing. Sure. The, um, was a sudden I grew up in a little farming community in Southern Minnesota called New Ulm. And uh, was one of seven kids. Uh, we lived a block from the cathedral parish, the elementary school, the, the high school. And then right in the corner or block, we had, there's a convent there that used to have like 20 nuns in it. You know, back German nuns back in the day. So very Catholic environment. And uh, my, we were regular churchgoers on Sunday. My father and mother, you know, were, you know, they really basically was is the family plan, you know, to get to church on Sundays. And um, my mother was very devout. My dad, my dad had had faith and he he was kind of a born leader and was a businessman and was very involved and engaged in the town and the city and things like that. And I'm the second youngest of seven, and uh, we had a lot, lot of really good things in our family. Um, you know, the Lord blessed us in many ways. But big challenge in our family was my father had been a tank commander in Patton's Third Army in the Battle of the Bulge, and mm. uh, he could he was there at the liberation of Mauthausen concentration camp for a couple of weeks. He he could speak fluent German, wow. so he was in recon, and uh, he was a, as a tank commander, and he saw. For two straight years, basically, he was there and and was right in the heat of it. And he came home, you know, before I was ever born. And um, like many of his peers who were in the war at the time, dad ended up with probably today he'd be diagnosed with PTSD, you know. And so one of the ways that dad dealt with what he saw, and he never talked about the war uh, with us until I was the last boy home. And when I was like a senior in high school, I kept pestering him about you know, what he experienced and what he saw. And it was just mind boggling what he had to, he and his friends had to live through just hard to even imagine. Mm. And, but so, so despite the many good things that were happening in our family, we, we grew up with, you know, an alcoholic father. And for my dad, the way it worked was, you know, once a week or maybe once every two weeks he would drink. And then he would, when he drank, he went, he got really drunk, you know, if I might say yeah, like, it was just yeah. really, and so he was, he would, um, he never hurt any of us, you know, physically or anything, but he, he had a lot of pain and anger that came out of him in those moments, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you grow up in an alcoholic home, there's, there's all kinds of dysfunctions that you're not even aware of, you know, you just know something's wrong and something's a little bit crazy. And then everybody responds differently to the dynamic in the home, because there's a lot of denial, there's a lot of pretending, there's, you know, like, we could have, you know, dad come home on a, on a Monday night or something, and, and it'd be a tough night when he got home. And the next morning, it just pretend like nothing happened. 
you know, and it's, it was just unhealthy and we didn't have the tools to know what to do with that. And ironically, of all the kids, I'm the guy, I was the one who's like the canary in the coal mine. I was, I, I just couldn't, I acted out. I, my response was um, from the time I was a little kid in elementary school, you know, I was in trouble a lot. I was pushing back on authority all over the place and these kinds of things. And in those days, but it's oh, okay. You just have a son who's, um, what should I say? You know, he just needs a little more discipline or something. He just needs to be corrected. Mm-hmm. And and the crazy thing is looking back, and one of the things I had to go through to just get some healing in my life was just so many things happened to me by the time I was in second grade and, you know, even in kindergarten. And I have memories of this stuff that I just learned later in life. This is not normal. you yeah. know. Yeah. And, that, um, and that there was no one there during those years to sit down and say, like, um, to help me understand what I was going through as a kid. So anyway... So just to say that it put a mark on me. And in my teen years, I pushed back a lot with my father before kind of my my late teens, my junior year, I, I really kind of opened my heart to the faith for the first time. Mm. I mostly was living in rebellion and pushing back. And I'd argue a lot with my dad, both when he was sober and when he was drunk. And um, and it got pretty intense sometimes. So uh, and that's hard to understand even why as a kid you're doing it. But all you know is you don't know how else to deal with what's yeah. going on you know and uh so about uh my junior year beginning of my junior year um all my, all my siblings were out of the house except my younger sister and I was the last one home my job was you know when dad would come home I'd wait up for him you know until he got home and make sure he got to bed um and just just because he wasn't pleasant to be around uh when he was when he had been drinking so um, we didn't in our family, as I said, we went to mass on a weekly basis, you know, went to the Catholic schools, but we didn't have spiritual conversations in the home around the faith. It was not part of growing up. It was just like yeah, the man's job, dad's job was to make sure you got to what you're supposed to get to kind of thing. And so it was never, uh, we pray the rosary on occasion, like during Lent, we pray before meals. Uh, and that was basically it in my memory. I don't remember much more than that. My mom was a daily rosary couple times a day uh, and read scripture, but she kind of quietly did that on her own. And it was very much a part of the background of our life. And I think at the end of the day, had a huge impact on what ended up happening in our family. So um, make a long story short, my oldest sister was living in northern Minnesota at the time, had a young family. And she called home and said, hey, I'm coming home this weekend. I'm going to bring the family. You guys, we need, you know, uh, make sure you're home. And she called a couple of my sisters who lived in a few towns, lived in Mankato and St. Cloud. I think they came home and on a Saturday night, we're sitting around the table, kitchen table, and um, she said, you guys have to tell you something, what happened this last this last week. And she said, I belong to a, um, a little Bible study prayer group in my parish in North Branch, Minnesota. And that was the first time I was, you know, 16. That was the first time I heard even a prayer group, a word called a prayer group, you know, or a mm-hmm. Bible study. Because in those days, it was Bible study as common as it now wasn't a thing back then. Yeah. You know? And so... She ended up saying, she goes, yeah, and so it's it's just a wonderful thing, just a small group of us from the parish. And she said, um, every week when we do it, at the end of the night, we pray for people's needs. And we've been praying for dad for the last six months or so. And wow. and so we're done, and I'm leaving the meeting. And uh, one of the men there, a local farmer, you know, said, Kathy, can I share something with you? And um, he, she said, sure. When she goes, you know, when we were praying for your dad, I don't know how to say this, but I honestly, I felt like the Lord or the Holy Spirit, or something's prompting me to tell you the Lord's the Lord's hearing your prayer, and if your family, you know, comes to Him, He's going to bring healing to your dad. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting there listening to this, and, and and she goes, and then I go to the car, and I'm getting in the car. Another guy from the prayer group 
uh, comes and says the, almost the exact same thing that he experienced while praying. And, and she said, you guys, I think, I think God's trying to talk to us and to say that he's the answer and we'll, we can bring healing to the family. Now, what was interesting is, you know, my grandpa was an alcoholic, so my dad had a propensity to it. Genetically, his brother died of the stuff. Wow. You know, he gets pills, you know, and drinking and he died. So it was it was generationally present in our lives, you know. And so and then we always looked at it like uh, this is this is our cross that we have to bear, you know, like mm -hmm. because dad went to treatment a couple of times and nothing ever worked and he'd start drinking again. And so we kind of were hopeless about it. And I was concerned and anxious because I was the last boy home. And I and you know, as my brothers and I, we would have to take care of dad when he came home, you know. Mm -hmm. And so what's gonna happen to mom kind of when when we yeah. leave? And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about this, at least I'm feeling it. I don't know how else to say it, but I'm sitting there at the table looking at my sister, and she's so passionate and so clear. She, she goes, Look, you guys, this is not just our cross, this is a spiritual battle. Yeah. And that phrase never happened in my the first time I ever heard that phrase in my house, you know. And she said, she said that Jesus is alive and Jesus, Jesus can help us. And I think he's reaching out to us, probably answering mom's prayer and our prayers, you know. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. A farmer in northern Minnesota heard God talked talk about our situation. I just couldn't put it into yeah, yeah. my mind at the time. And she goes, Look, you guys, um, if we, I really believe if we just turn our hearts to God more, and some of us aren't even paying attention to the Lord, you know, and she looked right at me, you know, <laughs> in our lives, you know, and uh, that God will help us mm. and there's freedom for us, you know, kind of thing. And so I went to bed that night, I'm laying there and just, I love my dad. There's nothing more I wanted to, to see my dad sober. And I'm laying there and I said, God, I, I don't know if this is real, like I'll do anything. And then for the first time since I was a kid, little kid, I got out of my bed and I knelt down, you know, next to my bed. And I just prayed. I said, please come and help us, you know. And uh, I'm sorry for all the stuff I've done because I did a lot of bad stuff. And then I went to bed. Actually, I was kind of laying in bed, sort of crying. And the first time I remember doing that and from the time I was a little kid. Then two weeks later on a Monday night, I'm waiting. You know, I'm at home doing homework late at night, waiting for dad to come home. He'd been out and he came and he sat down next to me. And um, he was quiet when he sat down. And I want to look at him because we'd often get into arguments, you know, and I could smell the booze on him as he's breathing. Mm -hmm. And uh, at a certain point in the quiet, he just said, Peter. And I didn't look up at him. I kind of just kept looking down and he reached out and he grabbed my arm and and he was shaking and he was squeezing my forearm and and uh and you know he was a tank commander he's an athletic guy even in his old age you know and i looked up and he said son please help me uh, i'm a sick man i need help and for the first time in my life i saw a tear come down my father's cheek you know i mean he was a uh, yeah so I me immediately I look at him. I said, Dad, God's gonna help us. God's gonna help us. And I'm like having an out-of-body experience, like, <laughs> how do you know? Yeah. You know? Like, but it was like faith is contagious. And and my sister's faith, something got imparted to our hearts. Hope came, you know, in 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 words of encouragement and faith. And I and I said that to dad, and the dad got up and he went right into his home office. He had a business downtown, he had a home office. And he went to the phone. He called our our family physician, Doc Ringhofer. It was like uh, quarter to twelve at night. And said, "You know, Doc, this is Joe Herbeck. I'm a sick man." Uh, he didn't say it exactly that way. He cussed a little bit, but he he uh, he said, "And I need help." And he went to treatment the next day. He got in, 
and St. Paul, he went through four weeks of treatment. We went once a week. For me, it was like, it was so helpful yeah. to, to get the tools to know how to, to identify what was going on in me, answered a lot of questions about some of my own struggles and why I was in so much conflict with authority and other things in my life. And But at the end of it, dad stood up and he said, you know, my name is Joe Herbeck. I'm an alcoholic. I can't live without Jesus Christ at the center of my life. It was a Catholic AA program. And then, so that was 97. And uh, yeah, no, it was 77. And then dad died in 97, 20 years sobriety, best years of his life. All seven of the kids came back to the faith. I mean, my sisters never really drifted, but me and my brothers yeah. and really serious conversions happened over the next few years. And then when mom died, mom died in 20, uh, 2014, was it? she had, she had uh, 73 children, grandchildren, great grandchildren all in there, you know, before she died. Yeah. Dad died, you know, a number of years before that, obviously. And she, um, and pretty much, not everybody, but pretty much all of them were engaged in the faith, like really, because when our, our family, our whole family culture changed after this. Yeah. Because of what happened, we started. I started pursuing the Lord. Um, I some healing began to happen in my life on the treatment, the treatment process. I mean, little things like I guess they're not so little, but you know, there's a step four for the alcoholic, if I remember yeah. correctly, is the the addict is to make a you know total moral inventory of your life and to be completely honest and sort of put your your cards on the table, and then. Um, in the context of being in a group session with my dad and other people, some total strangers, uh, just most of all to hear, he wrote legal pad, like page after page after page of all the stuff he did, the people he hurt, the money he lost, the things that mm. had happened, all this. And it's pretty shocking. You know, you're 16 years old and you're sitting there. And then the, the, the counselor looks at you and says, Peter, how does that make you feel? And I'm, I don't know. Yeah. You don't know. So what he did was he helped us name and, and, um, hearing some of these stories, do they apply to you? Do you remember some of those things? You know, and and what may have happened to you? And kind of just sitting there and and he helped me, he helped us ident first identify negative feelings that, that the pain that was there. And then to be able to say it out loud. Yeah. You know, because we would always, oh no, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine, but everything wasn't fine. Because mm -hmm. we didn't know how to talk about those kind of things. So that was a practical way in which the Lord really helped us. And there was some amazing, real help from the Holy Spirit in our family that happened uh, during that time. It would take too much time to go into. But essentially, that was the beginning. Wow. And that created an, an opportunity, the tools, the raw honesty, uh, the pain, the tears, uh, the anger that we were able to articulate in a healthy way. You know, like Scripture says, be angry, but don't sin. You know, yeah. and yeah. my way was I didn't I didn't know how to do stuff. I mean, I, I like hit my dad once in an argument. You know, I was mm. it's not good to do that, you know, but as a kid and you're so conflicted, you're 15 years old and he's pressing in and this is going. It's just so intense. And um, and then it happens. And then there's just you just felt so horrible and like what's happening. You know what I mean? So there's these are traumatic things that happen in a kid's life. And when no one talks to you about it. Yeah. Dad was a very well-known guy. He ended up being, you know, a you know, city councilman for 16 years and was a was a real figure in town. Wow. But you know, the generation he was in, a lot of the guys who were other city fathers and leaders, 
they had there are other men who went through the war in town who were going through the same kind of thing and every guy's different in how they respond to it and everybody just sort of like you know don't you know protect their dignity don't say anything about it don't talk about it you know and didn't know how to do it so anyway that was the beginning point and in the context of it for me it wasn't just a therapeutic thing it really came from encountering Christ in the middle of it wow and i really do believe the lord led us out of this darkness and broke the chains of generational bondage and addiction uh and the healing process began and so like i say our family events changed uh dramatically easter christmas thanksgiving all the stuff we'd always get together we'd have good family experiences dad would usually be sober during those those big events because the grandkids were there i think i don't know but but they were all about the classic things like good meals watching sports playing cards and stuff like that but after all this we my siblings and i just sort of spontaneously would start talking like how are you doing how's what, how's your faith life like what's happening and we would have conversation for hours and it'll wow. go late into the night. And then my nieces and nephews, as they got older, they just come and sit in the living room with us. And they began with just kind of fun conversations, but always it would get deep. It would be a deep dive. And it always would, we'd turn to the Lord, we'd pray. There'd be tears, there'd be, you know, uh, uncomfortable, but important conversations still. And that characterized our family life. Um, we just did, I rented a house a couple of years ago during COVID, brought all my siblings together uh, for three days, and in an instant, it was deep dive, you know, wow. and sharing what's going on in faith and kids and grandkids. And we'd pray together. We prayed the rosary together, went to mass together. Uh, just time of just honestly sharing what the Lord's doing in our lives. And so I'm so grateful for what happened. And then my dad, my dad, our, my relationship with my dad really got healed and um, over time. And, and dad was always a good provider. He was otherwise very responsible. You know, he was a leader and, the, you know, the parish priest leaned on my dad, you know, the school principals leaned on my dad, like other men in town too, you know, because mm -hmm. these guys made the difference, you know, in helping build the school, helping build a new fire station and all that. And so everybody was then just put up and was patient. And I think probably people were afraid to talk to my dad when he was sober about what he did when he was drunk, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, that's kind of was, it was the, when my dad died, my mom asked me to give, you know, at the end of mass to give the little eulogy that the priest and was there and the bishop showed up. He came and priests all over the place, packed cathedral. And um, what I remember was that uh, about that moment was that how the Lord's promises are true, because as I was sharing with the whole church, I said, you know, the mo the deepest pain in our life, the place of greatest shame. You know, the, the place of greatest hurt, you know, and confusion and bondage became the very place that we encountered the Lord, his love and great power that brought healing to us. So yeah. we don't have to be afraid of anything. Just to, to folks, you don't have to be afraid of anything. The Lord will lead us through as long as we're as long as we're able to just humble ourselves and be honest and seek the Lord together, you know. So it just was it's just the lord you know he, yeah. overcome, he overcomes it it's his you grace know? So. absolutely that's an incredible incredible story i mean absolutely beautiful uh journey of healing there for your family and it reminds me so much of uh, a passage in the gospel of luke where jesus says, says and i'm kind of paraphrasing but 
those who are well have no need of a physician, but yeah. those who are sick. And that moment, that that profound moment when your dad like opened up and said, I actually need a doctor. Like I need a physician. Like I, I need healing. And that willingness to admit that he needed one all along. And you know what? I think Jesus, yeah. when he was speaking to the Pharisees specifically, yeah. he knew that they needed a doctor all along. They just weren't willing to admit that. Yeah. But the minute you acknowledge your need, God comes to meet you. And I, also the other thing I love is too, as you're kind of describing this journey for your family is kind of that journey of not avoidance, but confrontation with the what's inside, you know, the confrontation with the anger, the confrontation with the, with the, the hurts and the wounds and the things. And it was happened for your father, but it also happened for you. And there's just, just this radical honesty. Whereas I see a lot of times well-meaning, but, but Christians are often, it's like we avoid what's inside, even, you know, even the unpleasant parts of ourselves, because we're afraid that there's some moral, uh, like if I acknowledge the anger, that's a sin or something like that. And so there's this avoidance that happens that just causes things to toxify. But what you're saying is your family kind of got all that out in the open, named it all, and then healing was possible. Yeah. And hearing you talk about it, like you're still like this energy and this enthusiasm about it. And I'm wondering is like this has this healing, like uh, the the effects of that, even though it was a long time ago, carried on in your life and your spiritual life. Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I, you know, the it really was an experience of coming out of darkness into light that didn't know and didn't know how. And a lot of times people don't we've reflected a lot as a family, like, why didn't we say more? And, you know, sometimes there's hopelessness, like there is no answer, you know, there, there, there's, this is just going to be with us. And we didn't know what to do. Uh, the unmasking of family pain and shame is a, is a difficult thing. My dad did, uh, you talk about um, willingness to hear and respond. My dad, we did once with a professional this major intervention with my dad, give you a sense of what dad was like and what we were up against. Had a living room full of all my siblings, some of my older nieces and nephews, family, friends. My dad came home totally surprised. Those are the, That's how they did it in those days, sort of do these interventions, tried to get him right away into treatment. So dad's sitting down in his chair in the living room, the room's full of people. And for the next two hours, it's people sharing, crying, trying to be honest. And the counselors, dad's not saying a word. At the end of the two hours, he goes, he looks at us and he goes, well, um, I'm not an alcoholic. He stood up and he said, don't ever do this again. And he walked away. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it was like, it was just that a lot of hurdle needed to be overcome. And that was God's grace. Years, like two or three or four years later, uh, he was in a different place, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the willingness to, the willingness for him to say, I need help. And dad, dad's part of that old, if you come to my hometown, the old German farmers, man, they don't ask anybody for help. They're there to help people, but they don't ask for help. They don't want to put any burden on anybody kind of thing. You know, it's just like, that's part of what it means to be a man for them, yeah. you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so um, opening up like that is your, you know, these, you shouldn't do it as a man. You shouldn't do that, you know, for a bunch of different reasons. And it's not, I'm not saying it's a healthy thing by any means, but it was that humility and you go all the way back to it goes, this goes all the way back to the garden. You know, the father wound is there. You know, the, the our, our, you know, Adam and Eve, Adam got seduced by 
You know, he got duped by the enemy and to mistrust and the wound happened and he didn't trust the father. And I realized as I got older, how many people, how many men, just, we're just talking about men right now. Yeah. And how many men are walking around with major league father wounds. I work in, you know, I haven't done it since COVID, but I used to go into the county jail, you know, oh, wow. a week with some brothers, you know, and, you know, you'd have 20 guys in there and this is no joke. I mean, 18 of the 20, I would guarantee you they're there primarily because of the massive wound they have with their dad and yep. story after story. And then some of those are like made my story look mild compared to what a lot of those guys experienced, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and they don't, they don't know where to go. So it's a major deal. And, and only the Lord, only the Lord and the Lord's grace ultimately can heal that wound. You know, you can get help from professionals that will help you cope in a way that's healthier, things like that. But the full healing really does come from, uh, the Lord, you know, because the wound isn't the wound is just Jesus told us what's in the human heart and how yeah. wounded the human heart is, you know, and he came to give us a new heart and uh, trusting him. And I think it can be hard for men to be vulnerable, you know, because it feels weak. You know, you feel you feel like I'm weak or I'm complaining or people are going to think I'm weak, obviously, or um, if I do lay them on the, my cards on the table, what if no one responds? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look like a fool. I'm not going to look vulnerable or in need. You know, you can't do that. You know, um, that's what a lot of guys think in their minds, you know? Yeah. And then a lot of guys don't have, they don't, if I think some guys despair because they look around and it's like, is there anybody in my life that I could really open up to like this? I mean, to talk about this stuff, none of my, I don't know. I, I've never done it with any of my friends, you know? And, um, and so they just hold on to it, you know? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I appreciate you sharing that because it is, it just goes to <clears throat> the 20 million children in America living without fathers. And those are, those are where the father's like gone from their life. That's not the, like your situation where the father was present, but absent in many ways, right. And disconnected from the needs of his children. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about uh, the importance of, of the uh, patriarchy, the importance of, of fatherhood uh, here for our families, for, you know, our wife and for our, our children. I think that's so important. And you brought it up a couple of times now that it's really Christ that brings this to, to fruition, but at the same time, speaking to men that are that struggle to be vulnerable, they struggle to to see that. Uh, and I'd love for you to help bring light to some of that, as you've done such a great job in your book. Um, just kind of that importance of the fatherhood and and what weight that carries for men yeah. and for our society. Yeah, I think looking back, I didn't realize it when it was happening, but looking back, I think the the thing that helped me most was. I mean, I, I was a natural leader, too, in different ways. Sometimes I led people in the wrong direction. You know, I played a lot of sports and did different things. And so and I generally wasn't afraid to lead. It was more instinctual, you know, to do stuff. Um, but the. The what came together was, you know, some natural in, inclinations and willingness to lead and then conversion happened in the midst of that. And the reason I'm putting it together is lots of men, they might be you know, leading a company somewhere, but they're, they're very timid about the idea of leading their own family spiritually, mm. being the spiritual leader of the home. And it's almost always relegated to the wife's responsibility. You know, I'm foreign affairs, she's domestic affairs, mm. you know, she's the spiritual one in the family, you know, and, um, and the, to me, and I've seen this now with many friends now over the years, I'm 64, 
and men who've raised, you know, been leaders of their families in different ways, imperfect. Everybody's imperfect. That's why God's mercy is there to bring, you know, to, to forgive us. But that um, when a man's heart is engaged in the pursuit of God and the love of God is in his heart, even if he stumbles and falls and he gets up and he's willing to acknowledge his stumbling and confessing and working things out, that is, I think, the most powerful thing in a family. Um, and then that love together, a husband and wife, ultimately together, living under the lordship of Jesus together, you know, that is real simply put, our heart is to make it our aim to please him, you know, and we want to learn what that is and find that out. And this is his family. These are his children, including us, you know, and he wants to help us. And so that's very hard to make, to then create a culture, like just the, the daily habit of having that shared experience of being able to talk that way. Many couples can't even talk together about that mm -hmm. stuff. You know, It's like the guy just feel, it's not like a guy in his heart wouldn't want to do it. I mean, some don't want to do it, but a lot of times guys feel like, I, I don't know what to say. I feel like, you know, and guys won't step into something and lead something where they're not pretty confident about what they're supposed to do. Yeah. And that it's going to have a good ending. You know, they don't want to do stuff that makes you feel, uh, you just, they don't want to fall flat on their face. They don't want to make a mistake. And then other guys are living in the, in what I would say is the devil's narrative for their, their self-image, their own, you know, like, look, well, you're not spiritual enough. You don't know what you're talking about. If everybody knew who you really were anyway, you know, God's not pleased with you. You haven't enough, you know, all that stuff, you know, it's this, it's the devil's storyline that works already on a kind of insecurity and stability in this whole area of feeling inadequate, also feeling guilty all the time or whatever about not measuring up. And then, um, and then as, then as a result, there's just, you kind of pull back and guys are quiet and without intending it, you communicate something to your children because there's an atmosphere around dad. There just is, you yes. know what I mean? And the relationship with mom and dad, even if it's imperfect, like, so, um, you know, we've got, I'm in Christ the King Parish here in Ann Arbor. We've had, uh, we've had over 30 guys in the last 28 years become priests just from our parish, mm. you know? Wow. And um, we've got, we, at one point, my pastor, a few years ago, I said, he said, we had 22 seminarians in the pipeline, you know, between pre-theologate, theologate, and all this stuff. And, wow. I got, and I tell this to bishops when I'm giving talks, and we go, how is that possible? Yeah. And I said, you should come. On a Sunday, Christ the King is a place that's got just like every parish, weak and broken human beings. But what you have is a lot of people, like our church attendance before COVID, I think it was almost like 88% every weekend, you know, of parishioners every weekend, not twice a month kind of thing. Right. And passionate about the faith. And I said, You come and they say, How does that happen? So, well, you know, all the things that people typically understand is, you know, we have Eucharistic adoration 24 7, we do honor. We do reverence and honor the priesthood and other vocations very openly. Those are good things. But one of the things you'll notice if you come to Christ the King is both mom and dad are there, mm -hmm. you know, the vast majority of the time. And dad's there with his heart. Dad's there because he wants to be there, you know. And it's not like these people glow in the dark. They just want to follow the Lord. Yeah. And when boys, when a when a young boy, every young boy wants to do something that his dad will will be um, proud of, you know? And all of a sudden, when you live in an environment where 
there's a lot of spiritual conversations we have as as family friends. Like we'll get together when we, my kids were growing, my buddies and I and their wives would come and we have a cookout, watch a ball game, go play in the backyard. And then we'd sit down and inevitably the Lord would just emerge in the conversation and say, hey, what's, what's the Lord been saying to you? Before you know it, we have a 45-minute just fun conversation or natural conversation talking about real-life stuff. And the kids often, you kind of say, oh, look, they're listening. they're here. You, you didn't, we didn't organize it that way, but it would just happen. So they grew up in an environment where it's very clear that their fathers love the Lord, and it means a lot. It's not just saying you get to church and you, you know what I mean? It's like living with the Lord together with your spouse is the critical piece of kind of the starting point of being able to, to create a culture as a family, which is what we've tried to describe in the book, kind of like what does building a culture with a family look like? And the critical piece, you know, is, is a dad um, coming to terms with his own calling in the Lord uh, to be the spiritual leader of his family and be open to being helped hmm. you know, by other brothers you know, to and then to help be in the journey, not only of obeying the Lord, moving in him, but being honest about my life, you know, beginning yeah. to put my put the cards on the table in my own life, you know, and where I'm at, what I'm struggling with. Um, th these are key fundamental building blocks, like cornerstones kind of, of sort of making the whole thing work. And then a guy learning, there's not much modeling that goes on in the broader church, you know, like guys aren't getting mentored to how do you, how do you lead a, how do you lead your relationship with your wife? How do you do it? That, how do you do that? Uh, how do you lead your children into, you know, help them find out who they are in the Lord and to, so, and that's some of the practical stuff we, we put in the book. I think that that can be helpful for people. When they first asked us, just Scott Hahn asked us to do this thing. I was like, write the book. I was like, nah, I don't know. I'm not an expert. You know what I mean? I, I yeah. don't feel there's a, this is like constant work in progress. You know, it's an adventure. It's awesome. You know, but uh, I, I don't want to write a book where I have all the right answers to everything. I just, cause there's books like that out there, you know? Yeah. And, and I said, you know, we, as long as we could tell her, just tell our story, what worked, what didn't work, who we are, you know, Debbie and I, our backgrounds are so radically different, you know, and, and uh, the hurdles we had to overcome and how the Lord helped us where we failed, you know, stuff like that. And I said, it has to be short. Uh, so that it, there's a chance that a guy will read it. Read it. <laughs> exactly. It has to be short and to the point. You know what I mean? That's and practical. Right. And so they might they might read this book with their wife, you know? So Yeah, I like it. And lots of pictures. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, uh, I can't remember who said it, but it was, I think it was, oh, I think it was Mike. Tyson, I can't remember the right phrasing, but basically he said, like, you can't be great unless you're willing to look like a fool. And I think that applies to marriage, too, and parenting and all of these things where it's like, unless you're willing to screw up, you're never going to learn. You're never going to. And it's funny because guys have that willingness to mess up and grow when yeah. it comes to almost every other area of their life. But when it comes to these intimate relationships of parenting yeah. and fatherhood and marriage like there's this, this hesitation and so uh, bringing you back to the ground level of your specific marriage your specific journey of fatherhood you know we talk about um some of these wounds you had but also um just your own fears your own vulnerabilities you know even though a lot of healing happened like you get in your own marriage uh and you start having your own kids and like 
the rubber meets the road. And so I'm wondering, like, how did you navigate that as, you know, maybe a young father, or maybe even a, a more mature father? But either way, like, how did you in your own marriage and in your own fatherhood journey kind of face your own insecurities and lean into that a bit and grow through that? Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear your your story a little bit. Yeah, I think there's a number of levels, excuse me, to uh, to address that. So one was um, Debbie and I, kind of in our first year of marriage, I learned a couple important things that, that were helpful. Uh, and that is how to repent, you know? <laughs> I mean, how to just be honest, like uh, early on that first year, I can't remember, we were... Um, Debbie's more introverted. I'm more extroverted. She's phlegmatic. I'm out there in many ways. And for me, when something's wrong, I, I process, I'm an external processor and something's wrong. I just want it on the table. I don't care that something went wrong. You just got to deal with it. We got to yeah. deal with it. Okay. And so, um, and I've been living with guys, you know, I'd spent some time in the seminary and I was here in Ann Arbor. We had a dozen guys living in a house together, sleeping on the floor, you know, living in common together, evangelizing on the Michigan campus when we were in our early 20s, you know, and we could hand, we could talk about it, kind of anything. And so there was, a, there was a moment where I came home and uh, Deb was kind of cooking dinner. I said, hi, honey, and this kind of stuff. And, and she was like shut down and she was emotionally shut down. And I, I trying to connect with her. I knew something was wrong, but she didn't want to talk about it. But at the same time, you know what I mean? Just at the same time, she remained quiet and it really frustrated me. And I tried to draw it more. And finally, I got really mad and I just yelled at her, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and I was angry and I yelled at her. And then I walked, it was just, I walked out of the house, went for a long walk. And then um, later that night, I mean, I went out just, and I think I went to a restaurant, I can't remember. But anyway, then I came back and she was in bed. And so then I went to bed feeling somewhat justified. Uh, you know, with myself. So I got up the next morning and I'm, you know, being the dutiful husband disciple, taking my early morning prayer time. And uh, I was just listening to the Lord, trying to listen to the Lord. And I felt like the Lord said, um, you know, I didn't hear anything, out, but in my heart, I felt like he said, you know, um, you can't talk to my daughter any way you want to. Mm. And, uh, and you honestly, you were put on notice. Wow. <laughs> it hit me really hard. Like, Wow. And he said, that's, she's my daughter and I've entrusted her to you, you know, deal with it the right way, but don't scream and yell at her, you know? Mm. And, and then I, I'm sitting there and I, I thought, what should I do? And I felt like the Lord said, go repent. So what do you repent? It's not my fault. She started it. <laughs> she didn't handle this. Well, she should repent, you know, and then I'll repent, you know? <laughs> And I, and I felt like, and I violated a, an important little commandment or, or pastoral wisdom in the scripture. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Mm. So she went to bed hurt, you know, and whatever pain might've been in her because of something that happened she want to talk about. I just piled on with ever getting there. Cause I was so frustrated, you know, that it, I wanted her to deal with it the way I wanted her to deal with it, you know, cause I think this is the best way to go kind of thing. And then I went to bed sort of self-justified. Like, I, I really don't think this is my fault. Okay, I may have, you know, but anyway, so I went upstairs and, um, and I, you know, sat down at the bed and she was just getting up. And, and so I asked her for forgiveness, you know, and repented. And then, uh, and that was the most, that that's was my responsibility. And that's what would please the Lord. You know what I mean? 
That's what he wanted me to do. It wasn't like, wait a minute, now I'll do this if you fess up first, you know, or I want to solve your problem and then I'll talk about me or something like that. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. But instead, just do that. And then it kind of created an environment. And and so we repented, we talked, and we said, I, this thought came to my mind. I said, honey, how about if we, I'm going to go get some three by five cards and let's, she had a Bible she read every day. I had a Bible I read every day. You know, I said, let's write down, how are we going to handle this stuff? You have tendencies. I have tendencies. Giving into our tendencies, both of us, is not helpful. You know, how should we do this? Okay, so if we come to this point, what we're not going to, I'm not going to yell. <laughs> um, and she promised, I'm not going to go subterranean and make you guess what's going on for a long period of time. You know, because that I'm wow. aggressive, she's passive aggressive. Yeah. You know, because that's partly what was going on there, you know. And so how do we handle these practical realities of our own? Why are we doing that in the first place? You know, and how can we actually help each other do that? And so we just wrote some three or four things down that we committed to doing in those situations, you know, and wasn't always perfect, but it really helped. It was helpful, you know, very practical. And honestly, the, the key thing for us was um, we both... Debbie knew the Lord before she knew me, you know, and I knew the Lord before I knew her, so to speak. And she, she be, she's a Jewish convert to the faith, and she had like a major conversion, was living it. So we we were sort of, in the language of, the, of Scripture, you know, equally yoked in the sense we really did want to follow the Lord together. And so we could say, honey, let's let's submit everything, like how we're relating to each other, our, how we're handling our money, how we're handling our sex life how we're handling, you know, the way we're treating the kids and this kind of stuff. Um, let's make it our aim and we know we're going to stumble and fall and let's be merciful toward each other, but honest with each other, you know, and that's, it's amazing. And that's not like a one-time decision. you got to re-up on that decision yeah. so many times because <laughs> yeah. it's so easy not to want to do that. So easy, you know? And uh, so I'd say, that that kind of stuff was foundational the first year. And then I had a guy actually turned out Ralph Martin's brother-in-law got to know him. Well, good guy. He's, you know, 10 years, 15 years older than me, whatever. And he made a suggestion to us because our life started getting really busy. And I did a lot of traveling internationally. Hmm. We had two or three little kids and how to handle all that. And, uh, and he said, you know, you guys ought to have a husband wife meeting every week. I said, what do you mean? I see you mean a date night? He goes, no, no, you should do a date night. Absolutely. You know, and try the best to do that, you know, to make that work. But no, you should minimum two times a month where you take 90 minutes and it's just you two. Get a babysitter, do whatever. And then, you know, do these things. Number one, sit down and say, honey, how are you doing? You know, you know, make sure you're checking in and pay attention. Don't make it just kind of like, oh, yeah, OK, how are you doing? But like be attentive, be present. And then both of you talk about how's our relationship going, number one. Number two, how are the kids doing, each of them? How's Sarah? How's Mike? How's Joshua? What's the battle they're in? Because, you know, there's battles all along, whether it's health things or age-specific issues and stuff like that. And are we on the same page? Are we, we said, you know, we want to learn how to have a good argument, but we don't want to spend our time having all kinds of fights and arguments in front of the kids let's um over how we're leading the kids you know what i mean because kids play off each parent you know like if i say dad said this mm, that's not going to work i'm going to go ask mom and then i'm just going to mom is going to give in or dad's going to give in and i'm just going to go do it so we try to get on the same page and how to really help 
lead the kids knowing we're trying to make disciples in our home. And uh, sometimes we would just be kind of at our wits end with a particular child and we just get on our face in the living room and we'd pray, we'd pray the rosary, mm. pray, you know, try to get some light from the Lord when we weren't getting it. Um, yeah. So that thing, that habit for years was extremely helpful. And look at your, look at our schedule for the next week and a half or two weeks, who's going to cover what. And so getting some organization in a really busy life helped a lot. It took some pressure off, you know? Yeah. So and then we we are also were very committed to each of us having a daily prayer time. Sometimes we do it together. Many times we wouldn't because of where the kids were at, be infant. And so I'd watch the kids early in the morning. Debbie could get her prayer time in. I'd get up before everybody. I'd get a prayer time in. And then I'd, I'd be there before I had to go to work. And I'd be with the kids. And then she'd get a prayer time. Or later in the evening, I'd you know help get the kids down so she could get some time to pray. Because um, we just knew we have to live from the Lord, you know? Yeah. And just live from the Father's love to just learn how to do that. And uh, not because it's easy, the kind of family I grew up in, part of what you do too, probably the old German thing too is, you know, it's a very performance mentality and you get recognized when you're accomplishing and performing. And so you're living for love, trying to, you know, do I, instead of living from love, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like living from the security of the Father's unconditional love, which has been one of the big journeys for me in my life as opposed to just being in that sort of orphan space where is anybody going to see me? Is he going to recognize me? Is he going to, is he pleased with me or do I fit? Am I in the family? Just emotional things, you know, like that. And uh, you gotta, you gotta be living with the Lord the best you can each day and walking with him. Uh, so anyway, my yeah. answer is too long. You guys. That's great. No, that's lovely. And I, I just want to thank you for the practical wisdom. And I mean, Here's the thing is that there's there's not really a book for this, right? I mean, there's not a roadmap that can handle the different temperaments of, of a husband and a wife and of children. But I, I hear very clearly the intentionality behind what you're doing and what you are actually um, practicing. And that's what we have to do. We have to submit ourselves to this reality, just like your budget, right? If you're not keeping track of your budget, eventually it just starts spiraling out of control, you know, but if we can stay on our budget, like you talking about with your wife, if you can stay on those times together, you start preventing issues indeed, because you're starting to allow God's grace to just really affect not only change, but affect your future in the direction that you guys are headed together. And I think that that's such important wisdom. And so yeah. I, there's, there's so many different avenues that we could go down here, but we are coming near the end. So I want to make sure yeah please i'd love to hear your final thoughts for men i'd love for you to uh to give us your final thoughts for men and then um let us know where men can listen to you more uh, watch you more uh where they can get your book here lessons from the school of love um i but but first what, what are your imparting wisdom on on the men listening yeah you know i think um I've known a lot of really successful men or a number of successful men in the world. I once told my mom this, uh, who would give everything they had to have a relationship with their adult children. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those guys said, I just was so, I, you know, it took a lot to build what I built. And I just didn't have the right time with my kids and they didn't have conversations with guys who really regret guys who are being honored for all kinds of things and their hearts are broken, you know? And I say that because deep down every man 
wants to be the best husband and father he possibly can be. I think pretty much every Catholic man, you know what I mean? That that's really what they want. But I think there's a lot of pain because they didn't, many of them grew up in a, in a family that they learned from on how to do that. And so they kind of were just floundering. So I just want to tell guys, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, God has help for you. God has a plan for you. And the greatest, most noble thing on this planet, I mean, you might end up doing great things and building an amazing business or being an amazing professor or something like that. That's good. But this friend of mine who told me about the the, the meetings, you know, the husband and wife meetings, he said, yes. Peter, you might travel all over the world and you're going to, you know, I have been places all over the world. But the most, the first thing the Lord is going to ask you is where's the kids? And, and <laughs> did you give your heart the right priority? You know what I mean? You can, kids are free and you can, you know, um, do everything you can. And sometimes they still go straight. But the bottom line is, is your heart was made for this. This is what you want. And the Lord wants to help you. And so I could not have done it without good mentors that I sought out. Um, other couples, other men who I could bond together. We could be in small groups together and share our lives. That was a big deal to kind of put our cards on the table and be praying for each other, not judging each other, you know, seal of seal of confession around some of the conversations and really yeah. being brothers in the Lord and together crying out to the Lord. That that's been a big part of it all the time. Daily prayer time. The Lord wants to come to you and he wants to help you. And he wants to give you the strength to be the kind of father that you dream to be. And um, the love, and it's even hard for dads, some guys who didn't experience it from their parents growing up, how to express love, even to their own children, you know? And to be able to be, to look your kids in the eye, to to love them, to embrace them, to kiss them, to hug them, to, to um, affirm them. Even if it's amazing how hard it is, if a guy grew up and he had no affirmation, he may not know how to do it. And it seems strange or somehow wrong. These kinds of things. And uh, God has a great plan for you. And he has all the grace you need. But he said, seek first the kingdom. That's the bottom line. And everything will be added to you. That's a principle. It's my, my life passage the Lord gave me when I was 20. Matthew 6, 31, 32, 33. He said, if you seek me first, Peter, this is a promise. I will make something out of your life for you. If you seek me, I will help you through all of life. But you need to you need to give me your heart and put me first. That's critical, you know. So true. And the great thing is, any man can do it if he wants That's to. Right. With God's grace. Mm -hmm. And the wonderful plan, Debbie and I look back and say, I, "I'm just blown away where my kids are at. I'm blown away with the things God has done. We got through troubles. We got through hardships. We got through my weaknesses and other things. And God's faithful, you know. Yeah. So, so true. It's not complicated. It's just difficult. Yeah. It's difficult because of human flesh and fears and insecurities, and the power of the world, the flesh and the devil, and the battles that we're having. You know, without Christ, there's no shot. And we're living at a time, Our Lady said, and I believe this 100%, final battle between Christ and the Antichrist is over the family. Yeah. That's ground zero right now. And you're the protector, you're the provider, you're the servant, you're the lead servant, you're the priest, you're the high priest of the family. Uh, and it matters, and your leadership is critical. You don't have to glow in the dark. You just have to love God and love your kids and be obedient to the Lord's call in your life. You know, Amen. so. Yeah, thank you so very much, Peter. So where can people go to uh, see more about your ministry and, and check okay. out your book? Two things. I did I, a full booklet. I just wrote this little booklet called Receiving Fire. Awesome. It, it's Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth with that we're already ablaze. And I talk in there about 
John Paul's great line, you know, the Eucharist is, is spirit and fire when you mm. receive the Eucharist and tying a bunch of things together. This is free. You can get it at renewalministries.net. Same place you can get our book, Lessons in the School of Love and uh, Cultivating a Christ-Centered Marriage. And guys, honestly, men who are seeing this, or maybe your wives are talking to you about it now, I don't know. Um, yeah. You may be like, oh man, I don't want to read a book like that. Look, it's not that thick. It's not. But it's, it's, I think you'll be, it's practical and it'll be helpful for you, really. I agree. And it'll help the Q&A with your wife, you know, little discussion stuff, you know. So. Yeah, very much agree. Wow. Well, Peter, thank you so very much for your ministry. Thanks for joining us today. We're really blessed by your presence. Yeah, thank you for the the ministry you guys have going and yeah. and uh, just responding to God's call in your life. It's exciting. Yeah. Amen. Well, we appreciate it. Well, Sam, as we end each of our episodes, be a man, be a saint. <laughs>